0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte and technical director here at Evidence for Faith, and since it's Friday, we're back in our study of the minor characters of the Bible, and I believe today's character's name is pronounced Shamgar. Now, I'm going to let that debate amongst yourselves or just wait for Michael to pronounce it here in a second, but I believe it's pronounced Shamgar. So, but before we meet Shamgar, um, just as a reminder, I'm actually gonna do a little different ad today, which is we are really looking uh, for people to come alongside us to help support this ministry. We offer everything for free. Um, At the time of this recording, I am not entirely sure what our current fundraising is at, but we need about $12,500 currently monthly to help cover operations and staff salaries and um, all the different things that we need to pay for to get all this infrastructure up to keep everything we're doing for free. Uh, We really want there to be no barriers to um, getting the gospel and the good news and just getting people in through their Bible. So if you've really been enjoying what we've been doing here, I highly encourage you to become a donor. Um, whether it's one time or you want to donate monthly, we're looking for any type of donation. So whatever the Lord puts on your heart. So if you want to become a donor, that's going to be evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence number four, faith.org give. The link is also in the description. So I really hope you consider it. And I'm really thankful for anything you decide to give our way that will keep us going for the next uh next year so um that is all i have for today so here is michael with keep the fires burning let's meet shamgar
1: Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're here joining me today as we continue in our study on minor Bible characters' major lessons. And from here, we can learn how to keep the fires burning, um, our, our walk with God, how to keep it close, and, and how to serve God better. And today, we're going to be talking about another minor character many people have never heard of. Um, literally, I've talked to so many people, and when I've mentioned this guy's name, they're all like, Who? Um, people don't know it, but his name is Shamgar, Shamgar. Yeah, you might be wondering too. like, who's this in the Bible? Must be an Old Testament character. Well, if that's what you thought, you are correct. It is an Old Testament character. and uh, his his story is in Judges chapter three verse thirty one. Yes, just one verse um, that we'll be looking at today. And the whole thing that we can learn from Shamgar as we look at these lessons and are going through and seeing what we can learn from these minor characters, And this one can be summed up with this statement, God can use anyone he chooses. That's the thing, God can use anyone he chooses. So let me begin by telling you a story that happened to me. You see, back in the 1980s, yes, a long time ago, I was hired to come to a school uh, to give some guidance to their science department. The students' ACT scores in science were extremely low. I had just finished working at another school where I overhauled their science curriculum and the school was even recognized for excellence in this area. So now I was looking for another place to work, and this small little school in Illinois was interested in me. At the interview process, I told the school principal and the superintendent that if in three years, if they hire me, within three years, the ACT scores, if they were not doubled from what they were right now at that point before they they hired me, if they were not doubled, I would resign. That was my deal with them. But but I told them I'm expensive. I would need money to purchase supplies and I would also need control of the science department. Well, they agreed. Long story short, they agreed and I was excited about my new job. During the time I worked at the school, I tried many new ideas in education. I also rewrote the biology curriculum. Things were progressing very well after the first year. There was new life brought into this this science department, and um, we were doing things that before it was just mainly biology. It was just uh, simply a lecture course. Now they were doing hands-on experiments and, and labs and stuff. But during the second year, when I got my second group of students in, in my classes, I began to notice really something that bothered me, that the school had a large number of what we would call remedial students. Hmm. I was intrigued by this and began trying to find some way to counter this problem. Now about this time I began also taking some classes in uh, grad school to help me to become a better teacher and to discover new trends in education. One of the professors I had was a Dr. Appleby and he introduced me to a new concept I'd never heard of in education called teaching across the curriculum. It was a new trend in education that required teachers to teach other subjects in their classes. Now, this is primarily for like secondary ed, high school. Um, In other words, um, he challenged me to teach more, uh, even though I've taught biology, to teach more reading, to teach more grammar, to teach more math, et cetera, in my biology classes. So I began doing this. I mean, we had assignments in this grad class, so I began doing this in my classes. I began teaching reading, and I was using math more and stuff. And, but reading was one I really focused on um, because so many of the kids seemed to struggle with, with reading, uh, even just reading the biology textbook. So I began teaching reading in my biology classes, and I did this by utilizing newspapers and magazines. Mm-hmm. I would find magazines, newspapers, etc., that contained articles dealing with various error, areas of biology that I would happen to be covering at the same time. I might have confused you here, so let me give you an example Um, For instance, I found an article one time in a Glamour magazine. Yes, Glamour magazine. No, I do not read Glamour magazine frequently, but I was looking for articles. And I came across an article in Glamour magazine on bacterial infections people could get from sitting in a sauna. Now, we were talking about this time in biology. We were talking about bacteria living in different type of environments. So I called Glamour Magazine for permission to copy this article and to utilize this, their, uh, their article in my classroom, which they gladly granted. As I found out, most places, uh, almost all magazines I ever contacted for this were very pleased to always do this. Um, the students would then, I would make the copy and give it to the students. The students would then read the article and then write a synopsis or an abstract On a three by five card, I would give them. I gave them just one three by five card because it was small. And thus, they would have to consider carefully what they wrote about the article. Now, they had to prove to me that they read the whole article and they had to identify all the key features of this. It was just to help them read. And I did this weekly, at least once a week, I gave them what I called a collateral reading um, in my classes, my biology classes. And surprisingly, the students, believe it or not, loved these. The majority of the students would constantly ask for more of these type of assignments. For one, I would find articles that were interesting to read. Instead of just reading a textbook, these were very interesting. Yet, they taught biological things that we were covering in our curriculum. Now, everything sounds really good at this point. But about the same time, I had concluded that some of the remedial students were not really remedial by the definition for that. But actually, what their problem was, they were incapable of reading high school textbooks. Um, I had some students like this in my classes. I had some of my students actually tested by the guidance department on reading and found that some students, one in particular, um, he couldn't read. And as I said, one, he couldn't even read a fourth grade reading manual, Uh, a fourth grade reader. It was beyond him. Yet he was like a sophomore in high school. So I began tutoring this student, and, and as I did this, I started teaching him about reading. I began to teach him more in biology, but I also in, included, I actually called a publishing company to get a remedial, uh, a lower level reading biology book and gave him different assignments from what the rest of the class had because he couldn't read this textbook I was using in my classroom, but he could read this one. And so I worked with him and um, he went, met with me often during lunch hours and, um, and we would work together like this, sometimes even before school. Um, And I was happy to do this. I began teaching more reading in my classes. I was happy with the ideas. The students seemed happy. Everything seemed to be going so well, but someone was not happy. It was during the middle of my third year at the school. I got a call to come into the principal's office after school one day. Waiting for me when I entered, among others, was the chairman of the English department and the school superintendent. I was then attacked about my teaching reading in my classes. The English chair was furious with me that I I was teaching um, reading. She said that this is her responsibility and I'm stepping on her toes and stuff. And she showed the superintendent some of the reading activities that I was employing in my classes. And she told me, back off, This is my job. I'm supposed to be teaching reading here. Um, I tried to explain that I was trying to help, not trying to take over somebody's department. I'm just trying to help because I said we had so many students that are below their reading levels. And I told them about Dr. Apple P and and um, this curriculum idea of reading across the curriculum or teaching across the curriculum using reading and stuff. And I tried to explain it, but to no avail. She was absolutely just read with rage at me and the superintendent backed her um, telling me let her teach the reading and I am not to concern myself with that subject but to stay focused just on my subject biology you know sometimes we make really foolish mistakes and we do stupid things this was my moment in time to do one of those Um, I foolishly said right back but she's not teaching reading that's the problem I should not have done that. That did not endear her to me or it did not impress the superintendent either, though um, I think there was a lot of truth in that. I said, some of these kids can't even read a textbook. But as I say, it was a mistake I made. I should not have done that. That was being disrespectful. I shouldn't have done it. I just made matters worse. Well, long story short, I lost the battle in the office. But to be honest, I refused to let... Things stay the status quo. Um, I still continued doing these reading things and I still continued to um, tutor some kids that were having difficulty in reading. I just, and for free, I was doing this over lunch hours or before school. But I kept receiving um, interference, and fortunately, I was offered a new position at a different school district in the state that spring. As I look back on that experience, I wasn't trying to be facetious or anything. I saw a need that was not being filled. All I did was try to help. True, it was not my stated job and my contract to teach reading, but not much was really being done to help correct that problem. So I stepped forward and tried to help. What is interesting is how the students and the parents all supported me in this. Well. What that's got to do with our story, you will hopefully see as we continue this. Let me set the time period now for what's going on with our story of Shamgar You see, after the exodus in the Bible and Joshua's conquest was over, was a period of time that we call the time of the judges. We have a whole book entitled that, The Judges. It's a time period. Before the monarchy, before the kings of Israel come into play, it was also an age of lawlessness. In fact, the era was defined very well in Judges chapter 17 verse 6. It reads, "In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that never is good for a society or a culture. Um, it was chaotic. Um, anarchy reigned. It was sort of reminiscent, in a way, if you like old westerns on TV or uh, old movies like that, with John Wayne movies and Hopalong Cassidy and stuff. It was reminiscent of uh, the American Wild West. There was no king of Israel at this time, which allowed the people to fall easily into idol worship. And then they forgot the god of their fathers. Why they fell into idol worship, you're going to see a little bit more into this, because there was something very alluring to that. But this allowed then, by going into idol worship and rejecting God, it allowed the neighboring nations then to come in, invade, and oppress the Israelites. For instance, we read in Judges chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, "...so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand the enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." But then what would happen is they would cry out to God for help, and he would raise up a judge who would lead them back to God and fix the problem, get rid of the invaders. They would turn back to God only to let chaos reign again. Um, So as it says in Judges 2.16, then the Lord would raise up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So God would, would come back to them. It's a wonderful thing about God, how merciful he is. But it says that he set up judges. Now, what's a judge? Well, the Hebrew word here is the word shafat, which means to pronounce a sentence on, or to litigate, or to govern. That's what they are. This word is used a number of times in the Old Testament. A judge was a leader and was the leaders. Uh, These were numerous people, but they were leaders at this time in history. Like I say, there was no kings. The Bible gives us names of these judges in this book um, called Judges, the heir of the judges, and it begins right where Joshua dies as this period starts. When Joshua, um, after the conquest, His death, um, until we go all the way through, this is the book of Judges, you go from his death all the way to the last judge, who was Samuel. And then the people, when Samuel is getting too old to judge anymore, the people demand a king, and God gives them Saul, the first king of uh, Israel, and the period of the judges is over. So it's a short little time period, just a couple hundred years, that are spread right in there. Now, some of the judges that we read in this book of Judges, is uh, they, they were amazing people. Uh, some were major players doing remarkable jobs, while others were minor characters in which little information is given. There were six major judges, and there were six minor judges. Now, the first judge that is mentioned... His name was Othanel. He's the nephew to Caleb. Now, this is the same Caleb that you read about in uh, the book of Joshua and stuff. Caleb, who was one of the the spies um, that Moses sends into the Promised Land during the Exodus, and he's one that came back with an optimistic report um, favoring going in and, and conquering him, as God said, to follow God. That was Caleb's plan. Othnel, his nephew, is mentioned in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. So you get a few verses about this guy. The second judge was Ehud. Um, He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he led Israel into battle against the Moabites, um, who were oppressing Israel. Moab today is where Jordan sits, much of southern Jordan sits in the land of Moab. And they were oppressing Israel. And his exploits, you can read all about him, fascinating story, in Judges chapter 3, verses 15 through 30. So he gets a little longer account. The next major judge to come along is named Deborah, who fought against King Jabin and the Canaanites. And her exploits are recorded in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. She has two chapters about hers. But but wait a minute. Hold on. We missed someone. Shamgar. Shamgar is mentioned in here. He is also a judge. He governs between Ehud and Deborah. But he's really only given two verses in the entire bible and his whole career as a judge is just one sentence and it's judges chapter 3 verse 31 so that's going to be the context of our text here today let's read judges 331 after him was shamgar the son of anath who killed 600 of the philistines with an ox goad and he also saved israel that's it that's his whole story that's, that's the whole thing that you're going to get from Shamgar. He's also mentioned in Judges chapter 5, verse 6, but he's just mentioned by name. Um, really no detail, um, added details given to it. So his whole character is based on this one verse that we have here in the Bible. He's one of those literary figures often forgotten about that we hardly ever hear about in sermons or, or Bible lessons or anything. So let's explore. As our topics are here, let's explore this minor character and see what God can teach us from his story. This is so cool. He's one of my favorite judges. Um, Now, even though this verse is just one sentence, we only have one sentence really about this guy, we can learn something of major importance. But to do this, we have to dissect the verse. And in doing so, we're going to see some fascinating facts about this man. First of all, Shemgar, the name itself. The first thing you're going to notice if you look this up in a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia or even some commentaries will mention this too. um, Shemgar is not Hebrew. No, it's not Hebrew at all. It's Canaanite. That tells us that he's a foreigner. He's not even a Hebrew. He's not an Israelite. He's a Canaanite. The enemy. Yes, the Canaanites. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that strike you strange that the leader of Israel is going to be one of the Canaanites? And, I mean, how many Israelites there, there are in that country at this time? Holy cow, there, there's, there's so many of them. But God uses a Canaanite instead of an Israelite to lead his people. I just find this absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, this, this leads to ask some questions then. Well, why didn't God choose an Israelite? What, was there no Israelite walking close with God after Ehud's death? Where, where were all the men from the tribe of Judah, the tribe that was supposed to be leading Israel? Where were the Levites and the priests who were supposed to be God's ministers and representatives? Why didn't they pick up the the, um, the gauntlet to start leading the people in? Why, why did that happen? Why didn't the high priest of all people, why didn't he come forward and lead the people? I mean, this question can go on and on and on, but you get the idea. I just find it so amazing that not one Israelite who is supposed to be fulfilling this role comes forward to do the job. It saddens my heart, but I'm sure it saddens God's even more. Second, it says in the verse, in this sentence, that Shamgar is the son of Anath. Well, that sounds nice. But if you research Anath, again, pick up a Bible dictionary, uh, encyclopedia, or some commentaries, and um, some commentaries might explain this. One finds out something very interesting when you look this name up. Anath was the goddess of the Canaanites. It was an idol that the Canaanites worshipped. She was the goddess of war, and she was one of their chief gods. Um, People even from northern Syria worshipped Anath. She was a consort, a consort of the idol Baal, the Baal, the Baal gods. She's one of those, a consort of those. Some scholars believe that this Anath was just another name for one of the Ashtars, a group of deities worshipped in Cana, um, Canaan, but commonly called Asherah in the Bible, which you see in many places throughout the Old Testament, the name Asherah. So this is just amazing. Some, of the, uh, some other scholars believe that Anath refers to this Canaanite god of irrigation. But little is known about this irrigation god. But one more thing that's interesting about the name of Anath. If you haven't caught it yet, did you catch that this is female? It's a feminine name. Thus, we don't get the name of Shemgar's dad. We get the name of Shemgar's mother. This indicates that Shemgar... Um, or that the Anath mentioned in Judges is Shamgar's mother. Now that's interesting. In any case, Shamgar is from a family that it's, it, at some point appears to have been involved in Anath worship sometime in the past. This makes this judge even more extraordinary than originally thought. To come from a family of this type of, of worship, of this type of idolatry, that his mom being named after that they must have had some type of relationship in this type of worship idol worship so he possibly came from a family dedicated To idol worship of Anath. Whatever the case, when Shemgar comes on the scene here as a judge, he is a follower of Elohim, of Yehovah, the Hebrew God, the true God. He has discarded, obviously, to be a judge of Israel, he has discarded the idols because he's calling the peoples, it says what the judges did, they called the people back to God. So Shemgar is totally dedicated to God. Now, according to scholars, let me give you a little bit more insight about this and how strange this is, but It makes perfect sense according to scholars the canaanite god um, of anath or asherah to worship this type of deity involved i hate to say it but sexual orgies that's what it was it was a very sensual religion involving male and female prostitutes acting as priests and priestesses who would have relations with the worshipers, you understand now why this was so tempting to the um, the Hebrews throughout the entire Old Testament, how they kept deserting the true God and going into this. It was uh, a sensual God. It was a sensual religion, a sexual religion. Now, if Shemgar's mother was involved in this worship, she would have then served as one of these priestesses or temple prostitutes for this, which many scholars believe that's what, what she was. But. Um, Now, if this is the case, because she is having relations um, in this religion with so many different men, apparently some man impregnated her. She has no idea who it is because she would have multiple partners in this type of religion. Thus, we have no idea. She would have no idea. Shamgar would have no idea of who the father was. Thus, that's why scholars believe that Shamgar's mother is listed and no father is named he wouldn't know. So, neither one would have known that. But apparently, at some point, either Shamgar's mother or Shamgar himself broke away from this idol worship and came to worshiping the true God of Israel. Now, there is one other minor theory that Uh, Very few scholars suggest, but there is a a small town in northern Naphtali, um, north of the Sea of Galilee, the very top of the land of of Canaan there, that was called Beth-Anath. And some, there's a couple of scholars in some commentaries that say that this means that he came from that area. Most, though, do not agree with that. They believe because the mom is mentioned, et cetera, et cetera, this is the Shamgar, the story that we just mentioned before. But I thought I'd mention that because there are some um, commentaries that will mention that if you go and you research this on your own. A third thing we can learn about Shamgar is he fights against the Philistines and he routs them by killing 600 of them. Now, this tells us that Israel had indeed turned again from God, and they were worshiping the idols and stuff. This being the case, God allowed the Philistines to oppress the Israelites. Now, who are the Philistines? They're sea people. They migrated from Greece... A lot of studies and recent archaeological studies have also shown this now to be true. That they did come down from the Greek area um, to the uh, what is today the the Gaza Strip was primarily their area there, and they came and they settled in southern Canaan. If Shemgar did come from Naphtali, as, as a few scholars have suggested, that meant that would mean that the Philistines conquered all of Canaan, uh, all the way up to present day Turkey, and that probably is not totally correct. So um, again, that's a reason not to, to follow that. But anyway, the Philistines conquered the southern area of Canaan. And actually, in at different times, over a period of a couple hundred years, they conquered up even close to the Sea of Galilee. We do see Philistine artifacts and stuff up there. So um, the Philistines were oppressing. They were a very evil people. Um, they were very technologically advanced. Um, they had art. They, they knew how to make iron. They had really good culture and stuff. So they were much advanced. And um, so it says in the scripture that he fights against the Philistines and he routs them, killing 600 of them. Now, a fourth thing that we get from this verse. Shemgar wars with and kills 600 Philistines, but just not killed them. It's The Bible tells us what instrument he used. He used an ox goad. You might be wondering, what's an ox goad? Yeah, most people today have no idea. The word is actually a compound word. An ox, as we start off with, the first part of this word, an ox... if is, of course, a beast of burden that was used in agricultural nations like Israel to pull the plows and stuff like this and to pull carts. That's what an ox is. A goad, a goad, and you might have heard the expression to goad someone into doing something, it's something that you would prod with. A goad was what a plowman would use to urge an ox to mood. He would goad him, he would prod him along with a long stick, approximately seven to eight feet long, according to most archaeologists, in length, and it would be pointed. Pointed at the end. In some cases, it would have an iron tip on the end um, that would be sort of sharp, but not super sharp, because you don't want to injure your ox, but you want to let him get going. Sort of like how a cowboy uses spurs on his boots, not to injure, but just to, hey, let's get going, that type of thing. So an ox goad, if you caught it, is very similar to what a spear is, a seven, eight foot long spear with an iron tip. It certainly could be a formidable weapon in the right hands, but it also tells us another interesting part to the story. Shemgar must have been a farmer because he has an ox goat. And you notice, too, that this is what he uses in battle against Philistines that have swords, shields, and armor. He uses an ox goat, a farming tool. He used what was available. He didn't go out and make a dagger, as the previous judge, uh, judge Ehud had done. No, he didn't do that. He made use, in this case, with what he had in his hand. He made war with a farming instrument. Now, the fifth statement that we see here. Shamgar is the savior of Israel. The Philistines had been impressing them, but Shamgar appears to have stopped this entirely with one major action. The Bible does not go into details about the military campaign, as it does with some of the other judges, but it does tell us that Shamgar got to work, accomplished his goal right away. After his victory over the Philistines was so complete, it, it ended the Philistine occupation. For the next enemy, as you keep reading through Judges, the next enemy to come along are, uh, is composed of Canaanite nations, not Philistines. Wow, this guy did a remarkable job. So what can we learn from, from God about our walk with him from this one verse in the Bible concerning Shemgar? Well, there's a few things. First of all, God can use anyone he chooses. God can use anyone he chooses. In this case, there were plenty of people in the land of the Hebrews who should have come forward to do God's calling, but it took a foreigner to do the job. I am sure there were people loyal to God still in Israel who said, you know, that who could have fulfilled the the role of the judge, but that wasn't God's plan. When the words turned into action, nobody steps forward. We often see the same thing today. Plenty of people say they will manage others for God or they will serve God, but when words aren't enough and action is needed, it seems like very few people ever come forward. Haven't you ever noticed that in Most of our churches today, it's just a few people who often are doing the majority of the work, the majority of the ministry. No wonder, by doing all this, we see people in the church, um, the majority of the church, um, becoming burned out. There's just too many Christians today stuck in their pews or their chairs that just can't get their bodies in the gear to do something for God. Oh, they might talk about it. Talk's cheap. It's the actions. Yeah, no wonder church sees so many burnouts today. People just get exhausted. Pastors just can't handle it anymore because they're doing most of the work. Second thing we can learn. As we said, Shemgar is not an Israelite. He didn't go to David Theological Seminary or Moses Theological Seminary, and he wasn't afraid to take over when an Israelite didn't step forward to do the job. We need to be willing to step in when a need arises, wherever you are. If you see a a void in God's work that someone else was supposed to fill, yet no one comes forward, maybe you're supposed to be a shamgar and go and do it. God gets the glory for it. And you get blessed by it. A third thing we can learn, Shemgar didn't use a real weapon. He led the Israelites into battle with a farming tool, an ox goad. Do you get it? He used what was available to him to accomplish God's goal. He obtained victory by using what he had in hand. You too can work for God with what's at hand. You don't necessarily have to go looking for something special to do God's work. He will equip, he will supply you and enable you to use what is at hand. If he's given you a special gift or a talent or a spiritual gift, hey, are you using it? One embarrassing thing will be to stand before God in heaven and he, he says to you, hey, I gave you this gift and this gift, why didn't you ever use them? You know, God forbid we just stand here and say, well, I never even opened up the package, God. No. God will will equip you. That's why becoming Christians, we get a spiritual gift to help edify, to help build up the church, to bring others, to help others know God. Yep. Well, let me finish with a story, too, that back in the early 1990s, I was teaching at one of the best schools in the state of Illinois. One reason that school was so good was it was blessed with the best principal I have ever worked under. I'm not ashamed to say Bill Freeman was his name. He was not only a gifted and brilliant principal, but he was also a master teacher. He could teach people without them realizing they were being taught. For instance, one day during lunchtime, I was just walking around the hallways getting some exercise. I would walk many times if I didn't have anything to do just during lunch, just walking around. And I would often go around peeking in classrooms, seeing what people were doing. By chance, I saw Bill walk my direction. He was coming my way. We met and walked together for some distance in the hallways. I can still recall him telling me that he was most impressed with my taking, just days before, my taking my environmental biology students snorkeling in one of our school ponds for a class. He then commented on a few other things that he admired that I was doing in the the education program, uh, the science department. Bill, like I say, Bill knew how to encourage teachers. In doing this, he was just encouraging me. Anyway, we stopped at a junction near the cafeteria, And he stopped and looked at me, and he asked, now, what goals do I have in mind for the science department? Well, I started telling him about a big idea I had. And as I started telling him this, he was looking away, and then he started to just walk away. It's like I had lost his focus. At first, I kept talking. As he moved further away, I took a step or two also, but I realized he's not really paying attention to me. And then I just stopped speaking wondering what I had just said that made him just walk away so coldly like that. So I started studying him. I studied him as he walked about 15 or 20 feet down the hall. I studied him as he stopped, and he bent over and picked up a small piece of paper, not even the size of a penny, that was on the floor. He picked it up. Then he walked a few more steps over to a trash can, and he deposited this waste paper in it. After doing this, he came walking back to me. He now stood where he originally was. Then he asked, now, what were we, where were we at? What were we talking about? Uh, I was absolutely flabbergasted because there's a custodian pushing the broom. We had passed him already. He's pushing the brooms and he's going to be coming back this way. So I asked him why he walked over there to get that piece of paper when the custodian who's pushing the broom is going to easily come over here and he's going to sweep that up. Why'd you, I'm just curious. Why did you do that, Bill? What he told me was I just wanted to help him. He said that, you know, it's a possibility he could miss this little piece of paper. But I saw it, so I took responsibility for it. Besides, he continued, don't you think it's good to help in areas other than your own? Now, I am sure that if Bill Freeman is listening to this or um, hears about this, I'm sure he is not going to remember this event whatsoever. But it's something I never forgot. It's still so vivid in my mind. He taught me that even if someone else is assigned to a task, and if you can help, help. In some cases, the person assigned doesn't do the task where he needs some help with it, or he might miss something, or something like this. You can help. So, in our lives, we sometimes might be asked to do something we never thought we'd be doing. But it will help. It will help others. And God is counting on us to do that. Lord, I thank you for this time we have here and this lesson of Shamgar and how interesting this lesson is and what we can learn from this one verse. So I ask that you just help us, Lord, to be more like him, not to be afraid to take a step and do something that's right to help someone. But, Lord, that you guide us through this and help us, Lois, to serve you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me today, and I I hope you've enjoyed this, and there will be more of these lessons as we continue uh, recording these, and I hope you're enjoying them. If you feel um, inclined to, we'd love to hear from you, and just please contact us on our website. Um, So until we meet again, take care, and may God bless.
0: Thanks for tuning in and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again and we'll see you on the next episode.